It was a high wire act. It was a high wire act because I know we would have conference calls where she was walking into these meetings, waiting for whoever she was going to be talking with to essentially say, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? You created this brand and now you're competing with us. John Nelson and his sister, Laura Nelson, have indeed performed countless high-wire acts to completely transform their family business. And in the process, John discovered what it meant to have a family in business as opposed to being in a family business. And who's John? Hi, my name is John Nelson. I am the co-founder and CEO of Seed Beauty. And I'm Esther Choi, the executive producer and host of Kellogg's Center for Family Enterprises' own podcast series, Family in Business. In addition to being the CEO of Seed Beauty, John Nelson is also one of our executives in residence this academic year. The following is an interview excerpt that the center's executive director and professor Jennifer Pendergast conducted with him back in October 2019 on our Evanston campus. So Spatz Laboratories, founded in 1955 by a gentleman named Walter Spatz within the cosmetics industry. And so that business was developing products for a lot of the global brands. My father bought that business from Mr. Spatz in 1989. He came out of the aerospace industry, so it wasn't like we had this long history within cosmetics. It was a completely different business for him to come in as CEO and then ultimately purchase that business from Mr. Spatz. I went off to undergrad in 1991, so I never, it was really never considered a family business for me. My sister, who's three and a half years younger, had more of a connection for the business. When I graduated in 1995, I then went into consulting. I did that for about three years, and then knowing that I wanted to go back to business school, wanted to round out that experience with more of an operational, entrepreneurial environment. So I went into the business knowing that I wanted to go to business school, but not with an intention of I'm joining the family business, so to speak. After spending two years in the business, I realized that I think that there's some opportunity here to be able to create some long-term value that I really looked at more objectively against my other options as I was, I guess, five or seven years into my career at that point. And then by the time I had come to Kellogg, already said, you know what, I do want to go back into the business. My sister had just joined in 2001 when I was coming off to Kellogg. And so by the time I came back into the business in 2002, we really looked to formalize that as a family business, so to speak. A lot of my time while at Kellogg was spent probably 40 hours in the academics and then probably 40 hours somehow connected back into the business. So a lot of my time was spent knowing that I was going back into it around how do I apply a lot of what I was learning. And then a lot of that time was also spent in heated conversations, if you will, between my father and then my sister about what is my role going to be back when I go back into the business and trying to surface a lot of those different issues in order to set that up for me to come back into the business. And so when I came back in in 2002, I came in as the COO reporting to my father who was CEO, inherited his management team that had primarily been there since he purchased the business going back to 1989. 
So there was a lot of time spent trying to figure out, you know, those different players and ultimately how I could then put in the team that I needed to to help take the business where I thought it needed to go. And John, when you came back in, did your dad have a timeline to retire? I'd try to, he's still not an old guy, so he would have been yeah, relatively gosh, young so then. I guess he was in his early 50s at that point. Oh, God. Um, That's a little Scary, yeah. I'm, getting, I'm not that far away from my early 50s. <laughs> Are you talking to your kids yet about no. being COO? No. I'm learning from them on social media every day. But, um, so, no, he didn't necessarily have that time frame. But at that point, you know, as we have talked about, very, very lucky because that's where you run into so many challenges with that first generation handoff to the second generation, that first generation wanting to maintain control. In a lot of ways, my sister and I were so fortunate that my father was really kind of progressive at that point, wanted to make sure that we demonstrated what we could in terms of delivering results for the business. But he was also at a point, too, where he was not enjoying, I think, running and driving the business day to day from the human resources, the management, everything that else that went along with that. So he was also kind of a point in his career where he wanted to transition more to being a, a tinkerer and an inventor and spending more time on the bench. Do you think it impacted, so he didn't found the place, did he still feel that connection to it? Or was it more, like you describe it objectively too. I saw it as a field of options. Does he see this more as this investment he purchased or did he have sort of his heart and soul in it? You know, I think his thinking has evolved over the time, certainly when he bought it, it was strictly based on the financial performance. When I came into the business, it was strictly about the financial performance. It still is. That's still, for me, the primary driver. But I think is, from my father's perspective, as Laura and I have come into that business, mm -hmm. his mindset has probably changed. Laura and I's perspective around the business had changed as well, in which... I think our thinking now is looking at this as a family in business as opposed to a quote-unquote family business. It's subtle, but I think it's kind of impactful. When Laura and I think about a family business, we kind of think about there's some obligation that we have. There's less of a choice around that, and it's really about preserving and thinking about it more of in a defensive way as opposed to if you kind of flip that or think about it a little bit differently, a family in business means that we're making a conscious decision to come together and the business that we're in today is very likely not necessarily going to be the same business in the future and certainly not going to be the same business for the next generation if we even get to that point of if they want to join that business. And so I think in that subtle change just kind of opens up the mind about how you can consider the business and, and that we're making a conscious decision to work together on whatever that given business looks like. So I guess to kind of fast forward from 2002 to 2014, Laura and I were, were really running SPATS Laboratories. We ultimately grew that business to be one of the largest outside partners to the global color cosmetic brands. They were relying on us to come up with the new products, meaning it was our formula our packaging, we would present those new concepts into their product development and marketing people, and then they would launch those products, and then we would produce all those in our facility in Southern California. 
Were you doing that alongside of them also doing internal development or is it industry basically outsourced that R&D function? It shifted during that period of time where they had huge investments in R&D. So they had their factories, they had their huge R&D facilities, but ultimately why were they making the decision to work with outside partners like SPATS? It was because of speed. We could develop the new products so much faster than they could get through their own internal organizations. What allowed that to happen is that we had all this vertical integration that we had developed over 60 years, meaning that we had the formula R&D, the packaging R&D, and all that production, so we can move so much faster in terms of the creation of those new products. And at that point, it was taking them 18 to 24 months to launch a new product which is mind-boggling when you're talking about color cosmetics. It's not like pharmaceuticals or something. It's, it's consumer products. But that's how long that it was, it was taking them. And so really a big decision came forward in 2014 where we had a decision to make, despite the success of the business, at that point really from 2002 to 2014, the business was growing on average probably about 20% year-over-year growth. So when I came into the business, it was essentially break even, and we were trying to figure out how to keep the lights on. But through this vertical integration and the system of creating new products very quickly, we were able to grow over that 12-year period. Despite that growth, we saw concerns in 2014. From the industry side, you had these two, really two or three major corporations that continued to acquire any new successful brand that launched. So there was some diversification risk that we had with a lot of revenue only in a couple key customers. There was a lot of price pressure that was coming down on us at that point where part of their portfolio mix had shifted to outside. So their margins were not necessarily as good as if they were doing that in-house. And we were starting to see the barriers to entry drop in terms of what it took to launch a new brand at that given point in time. So against that backdrop, Laura and I created Seed Beauty. The whole concept around Seed Beauty is that we would start incubating and launching our own direct-to-consumer brands. So we launched that in 2014. We essentially self-funded that concept and that growth by leveraging some of the cash flow that the legacy business was throwing off at that point. We launched ColourPop in May of 2014. It took us 12 weeks to launch that. We gave ourselves a really short time frame and said, look, if it doesn't work, we're just going to chalk it up to being a sacrificial brand, and we will have learned something in the process. Because for 15-plus years, or even going back to when the business was founded, it was all B2B. We knew nothing about B2C and e-commerce and social media. Zero in terms of our baseline knowledge and know-how around that. But we were able to get ColourPop to break even within the first nine months. It continued to grow in 2015. And then the beginning of 2016, in partnership with Kylie Jenner, we launched Kylie Cosmetics. So that brings us to, call it, February, March timeframe of 2016, and we had a decision to make, which was the rate of growth of those two brands was far outstripping the rate of growth of Spatz Laboratories, the legacy business. And in order to support that rate of growth, we needed to take all the resources of this 60-year-old family business and re-divert them to be able to support our own growth at that particular point. So we had some very heated internal conversations <laughs> that said, are we prepared to walk away from a 
a 60-year-old family business where we had developed these relationships within the industry for 60-plus years. Laura, at that particular point, was heading up sales and marketing and R&D, literally flying around the world meeting with these global brands every six weeks she was with them. But it really came to a head when we had to make this decision. And you're in the disruption story. So she's out on the road yeah. selling to these people who are, in essence, your competition, which maybe you can fly under the radar screen for a while, but then the stuff starts to grow. Yeah. How did she manage that? It was a high-wire act. It was a high-wire act because I know we would have conference calls where she was walking into these meetings, waiting for whoever she was going to be talking with to essentially say, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? You created this brand and now you're competing with us. So you let her go have those conversations. Yes, that's why I just said, like, you'll be fine. Get out there. Uh, he is recruit a sister or brother who's willing to was die on their sword, apparently. <laughs> you know, it was also a different time at that point. I think a lot of those brands, if you rewind to 2014, 2015, they didn't necessarily believe in the disruption of e-commerce. It would have been different if we were going into, at that time, Sephora or Ulta or wherever, and we were talking about taking shelf space, because that's where their mindset was. Mm -hmm. So we were able to fly underneath that radar for, call it 18 months, and they thought, well, maybe that's kind of cute, but it's not really having an impact. But really, in this March timeframe of 2016, we had to make a decision, and we ultimately came together and said, okay, now's the time. We're going and essentially shut down that business in the course of three months. Took all those resources, put it over on the seed beauty side, and then continued to grow the platform. And we added KKW Beauty in 2017. Last year was Fourth Ray Beauty. Then we added uh, Soul Body. And then we're going to be launching a third influencer brand on Friday. So now underneath the seed beauty platform, you have three influencer brands and then the three wholly owned brands. So the influencer brands, define what you mean by that. Someone else, that's Kylie, someone's driving that brand. It's basically attached to a celebrity or an influencer who is disrupting the traditional marketing approach, right? Which, especially within the beauty industry, even going back five years, was completely top down, right? Run out of New York or Paris, and it was the high glossy ads and Basically, we're going to tell you what to go buy, consumer, where that model is, has completely changed. So when you say that you saw opportunity, did you see this coming? Were you guys pressing enough to know that we see the industry headed this way, or were you kind of learning along the way as this happened? When did it dawn on you that there's going to be a different way to go to market and we can really take advantage of this? I think 2013, 2014, prior to launching Seed Beauty, I was really questioning the long-term viability of SPATS laboratories at that point. I had concerns about the price pressure that we were constantly under and how the unit economics would work as that margin continued to erode. Don't forget, we're manufacturing in California of all places. We would have the executives from these global brands come out and seeing how we were designing and producing our products, where they're used to in their factories like high automation, very low, low mix, high volume. And what we were doing was saying, you know what, we're going to change the way we manufacture, better link that to our R&D 
so we can develop products faster and have much more flexible manufacturing systems and trade off automation for more manual labor. But we felt that that was a competitive advantage for the business. So it was against all that price pressure, their desire for us to move production offshore when we saw the benefits of keeping all that vertically integrated here in the US. And then also recognizing that we did not necessarily want to hitch our wagons to these incumbent brands for the long term. So it was really against that backdrop that was like, look, we're either going to run some of these experiments without betting the whole company on our own and try to disrupt ourselves from the inside out as opposed to waiting for somebody, one of our customers, quite frankly, to disrupt us from the outside in. So take us inside the room when you say we had to make this decision and pull the plug. Is that you, your dad, and Laura? Is it the executive team? Who's in the room and what's that conversation like? Yeah, I mean, at this point, it was really my father, a little bit more context. So prior to this, Spatz Laboratories had been transitioned down through estate planning to my sister and I. We launched Seed Beauty in 2014. When we launched Seed Beauty at that point, we asked if they wanted to participate as owners in that business and said, you know what, that's your future. You guys go ahead and do that on your own. So it ended up being 50-50 equity partners on that new venture. So now all of a sudden we're sitting there in a conference room saying, are we going to shut down the legacy business? And it ultimately, who was on that? This was a series of conference calls and internal conversations. The conference calls were with uh, outside legal because there was a lot at stake at that point. And then ultimately making the decision to move forward with that, with legal on the phone, and then Joel, Laura, my sister, and I. So Joel's dad. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, sadly, one of the lessons of this story is you would like to replicate John's dad, but you can't necessarily. Yeah, he's, we're very fortunate. We're very, very fortunate in that way. And you and Laura were aligned, though? It took time to get aligned. Yeah, because our personalities are a little bit different. <laughs> Mine, I'm always pushing for more, I, I would say, and willing to take more risk, although calculated risk, where she tends to be more comfortable in the current state. And so that took time. It was a big decision that was the result of a lot of conversations behind the scenes to be able to get to that point. And it had to be because I also, although I believe that was the right decision to make at that time, I did not want to be the one who made the decision. All three of us had to be in it at the same time. So you make the decision, you pull the plug in three months. Yeah. What didn't go as you might have expected? <laughs> it depends. Uh, for certain customers, it went well. Very amicable transition. Was so it? meaning the conversation to say we're no longer going to be here to service yeah. you? Yeah, and how can we work with a smooth transition? But, you know, once we made that decision, we had to stand behind it. It's not like you can do that halfway. No. And I'm guessing once someone knows in the industry, everyone knows in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, and each one was under a different contract arrangement. So that was? That was 2016, but oh. since the launch of Seed Beauty was 2014. Okay. So did you have, you know, we're in business school, did you have a clear strategic plan, business plan for what it was going to look like when you pulled the plug? How'd... No, you know, I think one of the things that we've learned and we have to continue to do that now is just the need to be running these experiments all the time on the platform. 
it's through those experiments that we continue to gain learnings and then figure out, okay, this is working. We now need to go resource it and put more behind that. And I think that we have found that that is more effective than the traditional kind of bigger picture business plan, so to speak. I mean, even when we started to launch ColourPop, like I said, that was more of just, let's just run an experiment here as opposed to putting together this whole model. I mean, if we think about it at that point, when we had Spatz Laboratories, I was... Because we didn't ultimately, part of that too, is that we felt that we weren't getting the proper return on our R&D resources, especially when we were launching new products faster than they could get launched into the marketplace. Because it went spats, it went the brand, it went the retailer, then it went to the end consumer. So we had like two major silos that we had to work through. And you saw the amount of value you were creating, you weren't capturing, which was the opportunity. Yeah. So if you think about, it's striking me that there's a, professor here who made a comment to me that really struck me once about disruption, which is this whole concept of generally the message for people to hear it has to come from a profit from another land. So relatively infrequently does the disruption come from the core players because they can't let go of what they already have in place. You guys were a bit of an outsider, but you were still heavily invested oh, yeah. in the existing model and still willing to or able to see that, to disrupt it, which is kind of interesting because I don't know that that's that common. Is there something that was unusual about you guys in terms of your ability to see that? Or maybe it's this model that you created that allowed you to take, you didn't have to bet the farm to do yeah, it. Yeah, when we did it, it yeah, it wasn't, like if we had the conversation that we had in 2016 back in 2014 that says, okay, this is what we're going to do and here's what the impact could have been, there's no way we would have done that. It was just one thing led to the next and then through that we gained more clarity that said like this is clearly the path that we have to be going down and we had demonstrated what the results were. So it became less of a theoretical and more of like it's right in front of us. We have to go and now we feel like it's our time to go do that. So are there things that you learned here that helped you think about this iterative approach or was that more intuitive? I think that we learned that just through the business itself. But, you know, my time here and continues to be is just different frameworks and different models that could be applied within our business. So if you talk about what made you successful in the earlier contract model, speed to market, strong relationships, I'm assuming, ability yeah. to deliver effectively. Have those things, did they stay with you or did you have to develop a whole new set of competencies to be successful in the new world? We had to develop a lot of new competencies in the world, especially from the marketing, the social media, the e-commerce, how to drive traffic. Like a lot of that we've had to learn and we continue to learn on that baseline, like here's how we develop and here's how we produce, you know, it's kind of like we have this startup mentality that's built on this 60-year-old foundation. And what did that mean for the people you surrounded yourselves with on the team? So you mentioned, going back to you said, I had this team that kind of was with my dad yeah. and started, I can imagine they were all a lot older than you uh -huh. when you started. They obviously would have evolved over time, but did you have to make some fundamental changes in who was around you to be effective in this new model? Well, we had to, when I came back in in 2002, I ultimately had to change some of those team members, but especially now as well, because I think one of the things that we continue to learn is, you know, the folks that got you to one level are not necessarily the same folks that can get you to the next level. 
And having an objective view on that, I think, is really, really important. And looking at it, starting with what are the business needs? How do we design the organization? And then what is the skill set that we need for each one of those roles? So that's a, we're spending a lot of our time right now is just making sure that we're getting, that we're identifying what those roles need to be and that we're getting the right people in the right roles. And then in some cases, having to have difficult conversations, but in that, being able to tell the truth. So do you, and maybe it's the secret sauce so you can't tell us, do you foresee another series of disruptions that you're planning for with small bets that you're taking now? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just, we have to keep doing this, and I think it becomes harder the larger that you become, but we have to just absolutely stay committed to that, because it goes back to my comment earlier, is whatever the business looks like today, it better look very different three to five years from now, or we haven't done our job. So it's remembering what got you here and not getting too wedded to that bigger company mentality that's important. Yeah, and I think to embrace some of the things that made us successful but not hold on to that past as much as we need to. And it's just it's also not necessarily the most comfortable place to live because you're living in this in-between state, which is saying, you know, here's where we are, here's where we need to go, and we're not where we need to be. It's this constant push to evolve and not become comfortable in that. And you'll never be where you need to be in this model, right? So that's sort of the way it has to be. Yeah, if it is, then it's time that we got to look at doing something else. Do you have other advisors around you, truth tellers, that keep you honest on that, either a board or friends or mentors that, if you get too stuck, are watching? Yeah, I think we've had some informal relationships where we've really been able to benefit from that outside advice. We have not set up the formal board of advisors, so that's definitely a best practice that we're lacking in. But we're we're starting to take some steps because I think that Laura and I especially need some of that outside perspective. So let's go back a little bit because we've got so many family business people in the room. You come in, you talk to your dad about wanting to come in and change this. You say that he's very open to this. Was it really that easy or were there points that you and Laura had to think about how are we going to convince him of this story? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, that, that year that I was here, I think it was Monday night conference calls. And it was just three hours of standing calls working through what is that role going to be? What is his expectation? What is my expectation? How do we design it where I feel like I can have the impact that I feel like I need to have, but continuing to earn his trust is a result of that? Those were painful, painful conversations. Because depending on what you heard from him, you may not have gone. Like it could have been different. I don't know if it actually came to that, but it was just, he had his perspective and I had mine and, you know, and then my sister was in that as well. And so we just had to work through what everybody's expectations. So it's hard enough to gain credibility with an older team. You come in, a younger guy. Oh, and by the way, I went to business school, so I have all this great knowledge to impart on you that I my that professor worked, yeah. shared with me. Yeah, it, that's, probably, it worked against me. Yeah, honestly, I was going to say, sure. no, I think... Looking older, not coming back from elite business school probably is one thing. But then on top of it, you're coming in and also talking about doing things differently. So it's one thing to come in and say, I'm just going to kind of go with the flow here. How did you gain credibility with people there? I think it was around identifying what the key results needed to be at that time and then making sure that we were delivering on what those key results were. I think it certainly helped having 
my sister and business partner involved as well because we were aligned so she could see that change. A big change at that point was when I came back in, the business, Spatz Laboratories at that point, was just starting to do formula R&D. Primarily at that point, it was packaging and packaging R&D. So it was very much a male-dominated environment. Well, it's your dad, the scientist guy, right? Making cool packaging. Yeah, with his team, right? And so with my sister coming in, saying like, we can't have this going in and selling formulas into the global brands. And so that really, it was through her, I think, leadership that she really started to change what the culture was and what the team looked like. To now, it's literally the inverse. <laughs> it's like, it looks completely different than what it did back then. But that was a big change and it took time. Did you have sort of proactive conversations with her and then execution around how are we gonna manage this culture and what do we want it to be like? Was that you guys out being in front of people? Was it messaging? How do you, how do you make that shift? I don't think we spent enough time on what did we want it to be. We just knew that it wasn't right. So it was more, I think, just more tactically changing it. It's tweaking along the way. Yeah, and, and saying like, okay, this role opened up. I think we need to think about this one differently. And, and then it's a critical mass as you make those little changes yeah. that pushes you toward. So culture, people will say, is sort of these value, it's stuff in action. So that's what it was. Yeah, and it's still changing. I mean, we, we've talked with our team and said that, you know, the culture that we have today is not the culture that we can have in the future. And so we, there's been a lot of conversations about the need to change that starting this year. And then transitioning, we're talking about having conversations about transitioning from more of this familial culture to more of a results-oriented, how do we drive accountability into the organization culture? And that's not easy for a lot of people to hear when we're saying that this is not a family. We don't exist as a family. We all have families at home. We're raising families at home. We're not looking to raise a family at work. How many employees? Let's say we're about 2,000 now. And how many of those are production versus? Like half. Okay. And what's the non-production half? What's the average age, do you think? Oh, gosh. It's early 20, mid-20s. But that's part of where we've got to continue to make sure our minds are open. Laura was so interesting. She was reading out to the management team recently. And she used my daughter as like the data point here. So not the perfect data point. Who's how old? 13. 13-year-old, 13 right? So she had recently met with my daughter, Mia, and she was, she was going through and looking at the app to understand how she's spending her time on social. And like six months ago, it was three and a half hours a day on Instagram. Three and a half hours. And I'm like, I'm not going to get on my, my daughter for that because she's like, gets good grades. She's like a high self-motivator and she gets things done. Laura checks and then all of a sudden that went from like three and a half hours to last week. It was down to 15 minutes a day. But what is it now? TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And so it'll if be you think something about, else. You, yeah. If you think about six months, you've, we've got all these resources in this channel because we're digital. This is how we're marketing. Right? And it completely shifts. In three months. In three months. And you don't know what the next, back no. then she wouldn't have even been able to tell you what TikTok was right. or that that was going to be important. Yeah. So then you, it's just how, how quickly you can sit there and apply it while the incumbents are still trying to figure out how to build out their Instagram strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you the coolest that I've ever been is when I came home to my 17-year-olds with some swag that John had left and they're like, we thought your job was boring. How do you know him? So. <laughs> well, 20 years ago, that was just packaging. So there's yeah. no, there no formula in there. So it was even less cool. Yeah, yeah. So anything else, like words of wisdom to the group? 
You know, I just say, you know, I think from, from my perspective, one of the things that helped, we kind of have talked about it is, you know, I know it's a big decision. Do you enter the business or you don't enter the business? And that just comes at different times in anybody's life and their career. But I think it is worth making sure that you're spending that time around those expectations and clearly defining what that role is, regardless of how much time that takes. Because I think it's time well spent to set you up for success and make sure that there is alignment, starting at the ownership all the way through the management side of things. Well, on that note, I know everyone has to get to all those learnings in the class you need to be in. I want to make sure we have time to thank John for his contribution today. Industry incumbents are really willing to take the risk of giving up their core business in pursuit of a new model. The Nelson family demonstrated courage and strategic insight when they set a new direction with Seed Beauty. Their disruptive ideas are matched tightly by the execution of these ideas. Well, that wraps up our interview with John Nelson, Kellogg Class of 2003, CEO and co-founder of Seed Beauty. It's worth noting that after his interview with Jennifer, John stayed for another 30 minutes to answer questions from MBA students on our Evanston campus. It's just one of countless examples of these live and timely learnings that the Center for Family Enterprises offers. So don't miss out on more of these opportunities to learn from our world-class faculty and leading researchers on family-owned enterprises check out our suite of executive education programs at familyenterprises.net. That's familyenterprises.net. I'm Esther Choi, Kellogg Class of 2009 and a faculty with the Center, and now your host and executive producer of this podcast, Family in Business. Thank you for listening. See you next time.